Hello, and welcome to The Context. My name is Scott Pruitt, and I'm an anchor with News China. With our podcast, we aim to provide insight into the current trends of modern China, allowing you to clearly see what's happening today through a historical lens. Today we're going to talk about how a very short poem went a long way toward inspiring a Buddhist monk of the Tang Dynasty to undertake a perilous journey to re-establish the correct precepts and practices of Buddhism in Japan. When the first round of the COVID-19 pandemic broke out in Wuhan of central China's Hubei province in early 2020, many countries recognized its inherent risk to global health and began donating gloves, masks, hazmat suits, sending whatever they could to help combat the virus. Among the supplies sent from Japan were shipments from the organization that administers the HSK, otherwise known as the Chinese Proficiency Test, there in Japan. What they didn't expect was that the Chinese phrase written on the exterior of those relief boxes would go viral on Chinese social media. The lines read, Shan Chuan Yi Yu Feng Yue Tong Tian, which translates as, Even though we live in different places, we live under the same sky. Netizens praised the words as a sign of heartfelt support for China in its struggle to cope with the coronavirus. The lines are said to be from a Chinese poem written by Japanese Emperor Tenmu's grandson, Prince Nagaya. About 1300 years ago, during China's Tang Dynasty, Prince Nagaya donated 1,000 traditional Buddhist robes, called kasayas, to Chinese monks, with the poem embroidered vertically down the outer rim of each robe. The poem made such a good impression on high monk Jinjun that it ultimately played a part in his agreeing to take the dangerous voyage to Japan to help propagate Buddhism there. Jin Jun was born in the year 688 in what is now Yangzhou of East China's Jiangsu province. He became a Buddhist disciple at the age of 14 and traveled with his teacher to the Tang capital Chang'an to further his studies in Buddhism. In the meantime, he also mastered a broad range of topics such as medicine, architecture, horticulture, and calligraphy, just to name a few. Six years later, he returned to his hometown and became the abbot of Daming Temple. Over the following decades, Jin Jun traveled extensively in Yangzhou and beyond to propagate Buddhism, delivering lectures on the various precepts of the Buddhist faith to more than 40,000 followers. His reputation grew, and he became known as a Dharma master of Buddhism. The Tang Dynasty, spanning nearly 300 years from 618 to 907, is considered a pinnacle of Chinese civilization, as you probably know. Its capital, Chang'an, the current Xi'an in northwest China's Shanxi province, was the most advanced and largest city in the world, attracting tens of thousands of foreigners to admire its splendor and, of course, to conduct trade. 
Now remember, this is a period of time often called the Dark Ages in Europe, so it should come as no surprise that China's cities were larger and more advanced at that time. The folks in Japan knew this as well. The Japanese court was constantly dispatching delegations of government officials, scholars, Buddhist monks, medical personnel, craftsmen, and technicians, and these were the creme de la creme of Japanese society. They were considered royal ambassadors who embarked on hazardous sea voyages to learn from China for the benefit of Japan. One important aspect of the missions was to learn more about Buddhism. Back then in Japan, some incorrect doctrines and practices of Buddhism had become prevalent. Many of the so-called monks were in fact laymen in disguise because of the many privileges and reverence accorded to monks such as tax and military service exemptions. Many Japanese ambassadors would remain in China for long periods, traveling widely to learn the correct Buddhist teachings from venerated Dharma masters. By royal command, they would also invite the most eminent and dedicated Chinese Dharma masters to travel to Japan to help reestablish correct precepts and practices of Buddhism. Yoi and Fu Shou, two of the most serious and learned monks among the Japanese emissaries, were tasked with such a mission in the year 733. After serving in several temples in China, they began to travel extensively to search for one of the most eminent Chinese Dharma masters to undertake the perilous missionary journey to Japan. One Chinese monk named Dao Hong suggested that their best choice would be the highly respected Dharma master Jin Jun. Dao Hong had been a disciple of Jin Jun, and in the year 742, he accompanied Yoi and Fu Shou to Yangzhou to seek Jin Jun's help. When Jin Jun learned about the mission of the two Japanese monks, he gathered many of his former disciples who had themselves become successful monks in various temples in and around Yangzhou to meet them. The story goes that Jin Jun asked for volunteers to undertake this challenging but worthwhile mission. After a prolonged silence, they declined one by one for fear of perishing at sea. After recounting the story of Prince Nagaya donating 1,000 kasayas to Chinese monks and reciting the poem embroidered on the robes, Jin Jun decided he himself would go to Japan. Moved by their master's bravery and conviction, 20 of his former disciples changed their minds and decided to follow Jin Jun. Jin Jun and his followers set sail for Japan one year later when he was already at the age of 55. But the band of brothers didn't make it that year, nor the next. In a span of 11 years from 743 to 754, they suffered five failed attempts due to unfavorable weather conditions, legal complications, and other mishaps. Finally, in the year 754, Jin Jun succeeded on his sixth attempt. By then he was 66 years old, had lost his eyesight due to an eye disease, and Yoi, one of the two Japanese monks who recruited him, had already died the year before in China. At the end of their voyage, Jin Jun and his delegation arrived in Nara, the Japanese capital, and was greeted by the emperor in person, a rare honor accorded to only top-level foreign dignitaries. The emperor put him in charge of the Todaji Temple one of Japan's most famous and historically significant temples and a landmark of Nara. At a grand ceremony held at the Todaji Temple, 
the emperor conferred upon him the title of Grand Master of Transmitting the Light, which enabled him to teach the correct doctrines and disciplines of Buddhism there in Japan. In fact, the royal family officially accepted Buddhist doctrine, and naturally their example was followed by court officials. In the year 758, Jinjun was appointed Minister of Monastic Affairs. This made him the ultimate authority on all matters related to Buddhism in Japan. Over the next decade, Jinjun trained some 400 monks and then ordained them in the proper manner. In the year 759, Jinjun and his disciples built the Toshodaji Temple in Nara, following the architectural style of the Tang Dynasty. In designing and constructing this temple, he introduced architectural techniques previously unknown to the Japanese. The temple became the center for propagating Buddhism. Despite the vicissitudes of time, the Toshodaji Temple has been well-preserved as a good example of Tang architecture to this day. Generally speaking, the architecture of Buddhist temples in Japan has been enormously influenced by the Tang style. For instance, the colors used in some of Japan's most famous temples are very similar to those of the Tang Dynasty. Both like to use white for the walls and red for the wooden brackets and lines, making the buildings both solemn and distinctive. The structural forms of shrines and noble palaces were also influenced by the Tang style to a certain extent, although after a long period of localization, a unique Japanese style has evolved. Besides Buddhism and architecture, Jinjun's other great gift to the Japanese was pharmacological medicine. He is reputed to have introduced traditional Chinese medicine, or TCM, to Japan, which is still being practiced today. He cured various members of the royal family, and others, on a number of occasions through the application of TCM. And as recently as the end of the 19th century, many packets of Chinese medicine in Japan had Jinjun's face on them, he was held up by Japanese people as the ancestor of Japanese medicine. Another aspect of Jinjun's legacy stems from his artistic talents. Jinjun and his disciples were well-versed in calligraphy. They took along with them to Japan the genuine works of famous Chinese calligraphists, which greatly promoted the formation of Japanese calligraphic art. His own work, Calligraphy Model of Buddhist Scriptures, was also cherished as a national treasure of Japan. Jinjun resided and taught at the Toshodaji Temple until his death in the year 763. Legend has it that at the age of 75, with his Japanese mission successfully completed and sensing his imminent death, Jinjun sat in the Buddhist lotus position facing the direction of China and serenely passed away. Foreseeing his death, Jinjun's disciples had a statue of him constructed using the hollow core dry lacquer technique. The statue is now designated as a national treasure of Japan. Jinjun's legacy has been passed down over the centuries. Today, Japan is one of the largest Buddhist countries. According to statistics from the Japanese Agency of Cultural Affairs, around 70% of the Japanese population practices Buddhism. There are estimated to be about 75,000 temples and more than 300,000 Buddhist statues in Japan, more than any other country in the world. In 1980, not long after China and Japan re-established diplomatic relations, with the full blessings of both governments, 
Jin Jun was finally able to return to China. The lacquered statue of Jin Jun was put on a 23-day exhibition in his hometown Yangzhou and in Beijing. More than 500,000 people paid homage to the Dharma Master, who reformed Japanese Buddhism and has become a household name in Japan. Even though we live in different places, we live under the same sky. This simple poem encouraged a Chinese monk to embark on a challenging journey to the east. More than 1,300 years later, that same poem returned to China, supporting the Chinese people in their time of need. Well, that's the end of our podcast. Our theme music is by the famous film score composer Rock Chun. We want to thank our writer Yu Wei Tao, translator Yang Guang, and copy editor Pu Ren. And thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it, and if you did, please tell a friend so they too can understand the context. <laughs>